praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars of light. Praise him, you heavens of heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He also established them forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all the depths, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven, and he has exalted the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, a people near to him. Praise the Lord. Well, I can't think of anything that stirs me more than listening to Doris read the Psalms. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. Amen. A couple things here, a few uh, few announcements for today. Uh, I'm always looking for volunteers, anybody that wants to think of something to do to add to Church on the Beach. As you know, when we were on the afternoons, we had musicians and music and uh, less of Charlie and more of other things. And if anybody has any ideas or wants to volunteer to do anything in particular, please do that. Um, also looking for inviting, inviting others to the Church on the Beach. So if you uh, know somebody that uh, wants to come out and hear the Bible more as a presentation of the Bible and less of a, a life application, as I uh, believe that if we know the Bible, then we can apply it to our lives rather than having our lives applied to the Bible. So uh, please keep that in mind that if you uh, know anybody that would benefit from uh, uh, a sermon such as this, bring them out. And uh, baptism, uh, I, I'm uh, born and raised in the Baptist tradition, which uh, uh, we believe that uh, Baptism is something that should come after conversion, and it is a picture of our calling on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and being buried with him uh, through his death and raised to newness of life through the power of his resurrection. And uh, we call that believer's baptism. If that's something that you have never done and you would like to do is to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, then, uh, of course, I'll do that any day of the week. Lots of water out here, and I keep dropping things out of my Bible. Um, also, I'd like to uh, remember that uh, uh, everybody here to remember that Paul and Elaine are our missionaries from Church on the Beach that are in Japan for a year serving uh, the Japanese people. I got his uh, monthly update this week, and things are really going well. He's just, this guy is on fire. He's, he's uh, went there at 72, 73 years old or something, and it's as if he's a 20-year-old over there. He's just, he is doing great things for the Lord in Japan. So please keep them in prayer. And uh, we'll hope to see them back here in December if they end their tour. If it's extended for a year, then we'll just keep praying for them until they do come home. Um, you know, the elections are coming up, and I'll be speaking on particular issues which are absolutely vital to our nation 
uh, in our sermon today and uh, how we can apply our vote to what is morally just and right in this nation. And uh, so keep that in mind is that the elections are coming up. I have some flyers for Church on the Beach right over here somewhere. If anybody wants any or you know somebody that uh, you can give them to, please do. And uh, I see Darlene just walked up, and uh, uh, she's the one that gave me this shirt last year. It says, um, Jesus is the greatest gift. Uh, it's the gift that keeps on giving or forgiving. And um, anyway, uh, I, I just thought, you know, Christmas is a ways off, and uh, we're not even into the after Thanksgiving Christmas season yet. But uh, Jesus is forgiving all year. And so that's why I wore that. And I was hoping that Darlene would show up so that she'd see that I uh, am wearing this from what she gave me last Christmas. And um, then today will be the 42nd sermon in our Genesis series. I think at the rate we're going in Genesis, it'll be about 120 total sermons before we get into the book of Exodus. But uh, that's where we're at right now. And um, I'll go ahead and do a New Testament reading this week, something that I have not done for a while because of uh, different issues that have arisen. But uh, Romans, we're going to read Romans 5, 12 through 21, just very little commentary but I will give a little as things pop into my head. Uh, but it's our New Testament reading is Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, and uh, therefore is uh, indicating to us that anything that was said in the previous chapter or the previous thought, basically, go back and review that. This is what the therefore is. Um, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, meaning that Adam sinned and death came through Adam all died because of one man's sin. So death came through sin, uh, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And as I've said many times in our sermons, the, uh, the concept of sin in man uh, comes to us in three ways. It comes legally because Adam is our federal head, and that is what he is speaking about right here. Adam is our federal head, and because Adam sinned, we're already sinful in Adam. All right, the uh, second thing is that, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I got somebody moving over here and it kind of threw me off for a second, but um, we're in Adam legally, we are in Adam potentially. That means that I could have five children or I could have no children. Those children are potentially in me and therefore any children that would come from me are already condemned before they're even born. And then we are uh, sinful also seminally. That means that those who are actually born if I have one child that is actually born, that child is already condemned from the moment it's born. And that's borne out by Jesus' words in John 3.18. Those who believe in the Son are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already. Okay, he's saying that we are already condemned through the sin of Adam. All right, and then uh, we go on. It says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Now, this is a truth that we can just check out from the American legal system. Uh, one day it's okay to uh, spit out the window of your car, and there's no sin imputed when we do that. The next day they pass a law that says uh, anybody that spits out the window of their car will be given a $25 fine. Once that law is passed, then sin is imputed, or we are judged because of that. And that's what he's saying is before the law was given, and God gave a law to Adam, he gave a, another law, he refined it to uh, Noah, and then he gave the law of Moses. Before those laws entered the world, sin wasn't imputed. But he's going to make a point about that. Until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, 
even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Death reigns because of Adam's sin. We are judged based on our other sins, based on what God tells us. Now, I, I want to make a point here is that there are certain things that we already know are sinful. And God explains that in Romans 1, where he says that uh, uh, God's invisible attributes are known by the things he has made so that we are without excuse. So people will say, how can God judge people if there's no law for them to know? Because he's already revealed them in his creation, apart from his special revelation. All right, 14. Nevertheless, death reigned over from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now, I just read that, but the type of him who was to come is Jesus being the second Adam. All right, and Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. The free gift is the grace of Jesus Christ calling on him. It is not like the offense of Adam, who had not sinned, I'm sorry, uh, for if by the one man's offense, meaning Adam, many died, all people die in Adam, much more the grace of God and the gift of, by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. If Adam's sin condemns all, anybody who calls on Jesus Christ is much more saved from that sinful state. All right, Paul's going to say several times in this chapter, and he already has a couple times, much more. How much greater Jesus is than what is uh, uh, apart from his work. All right, verse 16, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, meaning Adam, for the judgment which came from one offense, Adam's offense, uh, resulted in condemnation. All are condemned, as it says, John 3, 18. But the gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. The gift of calling on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is what justifies us in the presence of a holy God in whose presence we're already condemned because of Adam's sin. Verse 17, for if by the one man's offense, death reigned, meaning Adam's offense, death reigned in the world through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Okay, now there's a point that needs to be made about those verses as it says those who receive. Salvation is not uh, universal. Uh, this is not a universal church because that's a heresy. You have to actively call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to be saved. And if you don't do so, God's wrath and condemnation remains on you. So that's what he's trying to say right there. Verse 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. Adam's offense resulted in judgment for all people. Even so, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, meaning Jesus, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And as I said, that is all men qualified by the previous verse, which says those who receive. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, uh, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, Jesus, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law, meaning the law of Moses, entered that offense might abound. In other words, God gave the law to the people of the world so that our offenses would become more numerous. Just as spitting out your window became uh, the law and all of a sudden you are now fined if you spit out the window, God gave us the law to sh make sin abound. And why would he do that? So that he can show more grace and more 
mercy on us by giving us Jesus Christ. Uh, we could not appreciate the fullness of what God did without the law of Moses, in other words. The law of Moses is God's standard. It is what he expects every person to fulfill. And yet even in the law, it says we can't fulfill the law because the just will act by faith. And so the law was given, and read that again, as many were made sinners, so many also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. By calling on Jesus Christ as Lord, you are declared at that moment righteous. You stand justified in the presence of God of all the things that you could never be justified by uh, adhering to the law of Moses. In fact, the law of Moses just adds further condemnation. But thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read another psalm. And then after that, we'll go ahead and uh, have our sermon. And this will be the 116th psalm. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord? For all his benefits toward me. I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. And you know, I, if you've been here uh, for the past few sermons, I read that recently. It's such a beautiful psalm. I had to read it again. But let me put that down and say a quick prayer to get us started. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you for the uh, green trees above us and the blue sky above that and for the clouds which are hidden from our sight now, but which will come out in radiant glory tonight. Thank you for every good thing which you have given us, which reveals who you are and your beautiful moral nature of which we so often violate with our thoughts, with our deeds, and with our misdeeds, the things that we forget to do. Forgive us and have mercy on us and help us to pursue you all the days of our life. And Lord God, help us to uh, appreciate your word today, what is in it, and to treat it carefully and to respect what you have given us, despite the hard words which come out sometimes of your word in judgment, that they are there for a reason and to lead us away from condemnation and towards the salvation, which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this we pray in his exalted name. Amen.
Okay, today uh, we're going to be speaking on Genesis 19, 12 through 26. It's called The Destruction of Sodom, Wake Up America. Now, this is our third and last sermon on Sodom and Gomorrah. And as I said last week, I want everybody to know that I am painfully clear on what I believe this points to and uh, how it affects our own society today. So if anybody doesn't want to hear about judgment, especially on the land in which we're living, I would ask that you just, you know, go ahead and leave now because I'm painfully honest about applying the Bible to our own lives. Um, Last week I used a word which um, some people may have misunderstood my intention. And I was thinking about this, and I talked to my brother about it, and uh, I used the word pervert when speaking of homosexuals. And some people may have uh, uh, assumed that that was a pejorative, as if, like, you know, I'm calling him a bad name. That's not it at all. In the society, we have gotten so far away from our speech and the things that we intend that we can no longer say anything without, without offending somebody. Uh, we hear all the time Mitt Romney will say, well, that's not true about what Barack Obama says. Or Barack Obama will say, that's not true about what Mitt Romney says. But nobody ever uses the term liar, when in fact that's what untruth is, is it is a lie. But if you call somebody a liar, all of a sudden everybody jumps all over you. We have to have words to describe situations. And the word pervert simply means a person that practices a perversion, whether it's you know, a bestiality or whether it's homosexuality or any other issue. And so when I use that term, it's not meant as a pejorative. It's meant as a descriptive of the actions that they are uh, holding in their hearts. So when you hear me use words like that, think through why I'm using them. Because I take these sermons, and I spend two full days typing them, and then I spend another seven days when I'm ready to give them, practicing them out loud and thinking through each word as to what I'm going to say so that people understand God's nature and his character from his word. All right, before we get into that sermon, though, I'd like to go ahead and give you This Day in History, which I do every single week. And uh, today is 23 September. On this day in 1642, the first commencement at Harvard College in Cambridge, Massachusetts was held. Now, does anybody know what Harvard College was originally established for? Anybody tell me that? It was, that's right. It was a theological seminary. It was designed in order, just as all of the older seminary or universities in America, these Ivy League colleges and universities were originally designed as theological seminaries in order to train up preachers to go out into this new world and to preach the word of God to people. And two of the courses that were mandatory at that time were Hebrew and Greek because they wanted these people that were being trained in the word of God to be able to interpret the word of God properly. And in order to do that, you don't rely on just one translation, but you get into the originals and you read other people's commentaries and translations to get a full grasp of what God is trying to tell us. No man is an island, and we need to take in the information and evaluate it. Is this proper? Is this improper? Well, that was what Harvard was designed for. In 1779, John Paul Jones was the commander of a particular American warship. Does anybody remember the name of that warship? The Bonhomme. And he said something on this day in uh, 1779. Does anybody remember his quote? I have not yet begun to fight. Very good. 1780, a guy named John Andre. He was a British spy. He was captured with papers revealing that a particular person was going to surrender West Point, New York to the British. Anybody know who he uh, had papers they discovered? Benedict. Benedict Arnold. Very good. All right. So Benedict Arnold, 
And uh, believe it or not, Benedict Arnold was one of the greatest generals of the Revolutionary War until he went turncoat. And maybe because the war was, you know, not being won at the time, it's not really known why, but uh, he was a great general. He was one of uh, Washington's favorites. And eventually, you know, he was, uh, did turn coat. He went back uh, to England and there he died in obscurity because he wasn't loved there and he wasn't loved here. So uh, it was a very sad situation that happened in this man's life, but that was this day in uh, 1780. And then in 1962, a particular uh, program premiered on ABC and it was the first program on that network to be carried in color. Anybody know what it was? It was a cartoon and it was called The Jetsons. Meet George Jetson. Anyway, there you go, 1999. One more thing, which is not really a big historical event, but it's something that when I read it, I thought I have to include this because this goes right to the heart of today's sermon. A 17-month-old girl fell 230 feet from the Capilano Suspension Bridge in North Vancouver, British Columbia, onto a rocky ledge. That's 23 stories, and she had bruises, but no broken limbs. 17-month-old girl. And that bears directly on what we're going to talk about today, is God's mercy, even in his judgment. And now, I have something that, you know, I, I normally don't introduce jokes into the beginning of my sermon, but today there was one that probably everybody here has gotten by email. So I'm sure you're aware of it already, but it fits very well with what is coming as well. So let me go ahead and read this to you. Two battleships assigned to the training squadron had been on sea maneuvers and heavy weather off of California coast for several days. As night fell, the captain noticed the patchy fog and decided to remain on the bridge. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing of the bridge reported light bearing on the starboard bow. Is it steady or moving astern, the captain asked. The lookout replied, steady, Captain, which meant the battleship was on a collision course with the other ship. The captain called to the single men, single that ship. You are on a collision course. Advise you to alter 20 degrees. So he flips in his message. Back came the uh, answering signal. Advise that you change your course 20 degrees. He said, I am a, uh, I am a Coast Guard seaman second class, came the reply. Change your course at once. The officer was furious. He spat out, we are a battleship squadron. Change your course, 20 degrees. The flashing light replied, I am a lighthouse. And the squadron changed course. So if you understand what's going on, this guy in his arrogance is heading towards the lighthouse and the lighthouse is trying to tell him, you need to change your course. Today, we are going to see how heeding or failing to heed warnings can affect the course of one's life, the course of an entire city or even the course of history itself. It is funny to joke about battleships and lighthouses, but when eternity is at stake, the humor fades. Our text verse for today comes from the book of Jude. We're going to read verses 5 through 7. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains, under darkness, for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Eternal fire, along with all of its associated pains, is real. Hell is real. And the Bible has given us examples to show us both how to avoid it and the consequences for not doing so. 
And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Thought number one today is pay heed to what's important. Throughout history, there have been records of people warned of coming tragedy, which have been completely ignored. And this is for a host of reasons, stupidity, arrogance, disbelief, and denial, among other things. The tide of wars has changed, empires have collapsed, space vehicles have fallen back to earth, and lives have been lost, all because of unheeded warnings. On April 15th, 1912, the Titanic sunk in the Atlantic after hitting an iceberg. The captain of the ship, a guy named Edward J. Smith, slid to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean with it, even after he had received several warnings about the ice. The Bible is full of such unheeded warnings. We come to verse 12 of chapter 19. Then the men said to Lot, have you noticed anyone here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, among uh, who, I'm sorry, I got to read that again. That guy banging over there was really distracting me. It's just got me off today. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. Although this is not standard operating procedure for God, there are times when he saves people out of a coming calamity. When King Zedekiah asked Jeremiah the prophet to inquire of the Lord about the fate of Jerusalem, Jeremiah proclaimed doom upon the city in graphic detail. And he did this, believe it or not, right from the law of Moses. The book of Leviticus chapter 26 and the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28 give graphic detail of what would come upon the people of Israel if they rejected him. And that's what he's doing. He's just reiterating what the Lord had already said. He gave every type of disaster. He just went through this list of what's going to come upon them for failing to heed God's warning. And it would come not only on the city, but upon God's people as well. But in a dem demonstration of mercy, he also gave this word to Jeremiah. He said, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who remains in this city shall by, die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, he shall live and his life shall be as a prize to him. For I have set my face against this city for adversity and not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall destroy it with fire. Now, many of us personally have known someone that has been kind of given a divine warning. Don't get on this airplane or don't uh, go out with your friends tonight. It just kind of pops into their head that they need to not do this thing. And even if we don't personally know somebody that this has happened to, we know somebody that we, we know we've heard stories about that kind of thing. And what this is, is it's God's way of controlling all things that happen because this happens to believers and it happens to non-believers. It is God's way of controlling every single detail that happens in human history. And what he is doing is he is working out a plan from the very creation all the way to the end of time. And he may need that person in a pagan country to exist for another 30 years for his own purposes. That is a type of divine warning as well. And people heed these things and God's plan is being fulfilled because of them. We come to verse 13. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now, I have personally lost favor with quite a few people in my Bible studies and during particular sermons that I preach because I stand on the biblical truth that disaster never occurs 
apart from God's will. After the planes struck the Twin Towers on 9-11, several noted preachers in America stood up and they said that it was judgment on this land. And of course, immediately after they did that, the media ate them alive. And over time, these preachers either partially or completely retracted their stand. But they were right in the beginning. 9-1-1 was judgment on sin, as all tragedies in life are. Calamity comes either to remove sin or to protect from sin. Not all tragedies occur because of a sin that's been committed, but some come to save a person from possibly even worse. When a child dies, for example, for all we know, God looked through time and saw that the death for that child was better than what would have otherwise happened to them. And we simply cannot know what God knows and what we perceive as evil may actually have happened for a very good purpose. The Bible shows very clearly that judgment upon Sodom was directly the result of sin. And the authority ascribed to the judgment by these messengers is absolutely clear. It said, the Lord, the Lord Jehovah has sent us to destroy it. Yes, but we're different than Sodom here in America, aren't we? 911 wasn't a judgment on us. That was because of the wickedness of Islam. And so we close our eyes and we fail to see the truth of what's happening. Of course, 911 was an attack by Muslim adherents to Islam, but that has nothing to do with the root cause of what happened. Who is it that protects the righteous and judges the sinner? If we were living rightly in this land, no power could come against us. The method and the means of God's judgment is as varied as the outcome of the judgment itself. Nobody, and I mean nobody, who believes in an all-knowing God disputes that he knows everything. That's the meaning of the term omniscient. God knows all. But when something catastrophic happens, we suddenly forget this truth, and we say, surely God wouldn't allow that to happen, as if this all-knowing God suddenly lets something slip. But Amos knows better, and here's what he said about disasters coming upon cities. He said, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? And the answer is yes. Disaster was to come upon Sodom, and disaster did come upon America. Sodom was destroyed, and America was given the grace and the chance to repent, just as wicked Nineveh was given a chance to repent when God sent Jonah up to them. But of course, we haven't. Does anybody here think that God has stopped watching? Do you think God isn't still warning? Nineveh, however, did repent, and they survived as a nation for a couple hundred more years. We haven't, and I have a feeling that we don't have long to go without more judgment coming upon this nation. The Titanic's first warning came from another passenger ship called the Coronia. On the morning of April 14th, Captain Smith posted the message before leading a religious service for the first-class passengers. The second warning came in the afternoon from the Baltic. Smith showed it to a guy named Joseph Ismay. He was the chairman of the White Star Line. In the evening, a warning was made to another ship which was overheard by the crew of the Titanic, and later, Two more came in from other ships, but they were ignored by operators. They were distracted by personal messages coming in for the passengers. Verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city. 
But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. The most important news that these men would ever hear in their lives was met with disbelief. Judgment here in Sodom? The flood was a myth and there is no Lord. Uncle Lot, I've taken philosophy and my brother here, he's taken evolutionary science. I can assure you that nothing is gonna happen tonight. We're heading to the bar and why don't you just come along with us, Reverend Lot? Many years ago, Billy Graham was writing a book with, uh, uh, about judgment coming on America and his wife Ruth was looking over the uh, manuscript as he was preparing this book and she had just finished a particular section about the degradation of America's morals, the corruption of religion and the abuse of the blessings of God which he has granted us and she turned to Billy and she said if God doesn't punish America he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I heard him mention this a little later after the book was published in one of his crusade messages. And he, along with many other people, have been leading the call for this nation to repent and turn from the direction that we're heading. The late Chuck Colson, some of you may know him. I used to get his uh, uh, morning update every single day. He was a prominent voice out here telling people that our morals are slipping and we need to turn away from the direction we're heading. These men along with pastors and preachers all throughout the land have been calling out, but nothing is turning the tide in this land. September 11th worked for what? Two months maybe, maybe three. I remember after it happened, I was just a very new Christian. I'd been a Christian for about six months and I remember seeing all these flags going up on cars and I was sitting in our Methodist church and all of a sudden, all of these people were showing up on Sunday morning. And I thought, I wonder what they're doing here. I knew that 9-11 had happened, but I never made the connection that suddenly people suddenly thought they had to come to God. And so for two, maybe three months, the numbers were up there and they slowly started to dwindle down, dwindle down a little bit more. But the bumper sticker on the back of everybody's car still said the same thing, God bless America. And I thought, you know what? I need to do something about this. So I went and I had a pickup truck at the time, a little old pickup, and uh, I had a, uh, big sign made at the sign shop. And instead of saying, God bless America, it said, bless God, America. And that was my way of getting people to say that, or to think through that you can't have God's blessings unless you are first blessing your creator. So as it, as it stood about three months, the numbers around America went back to their pre 9-11 church levels with the exception of a very few churches. And these were churches that proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ and that taught the Bible as it should be taught. And those churches, even to this day, have those numbers up. They've done studies and they've found this out. But here we are, after falling back into our old ways and we elect politicians that are openly gay, we watch television, which promotes the gay lifestyle, we throw money at gay musicians. And I can tell you, I see this every single day, Christians post right on Facebook about their Starbucks coffee in the morning, knowing very well that Starbucks is one of the companies that highly funds the gay agenda. And we wonder why are these things happening in our particular lives? On Saturday, 18 August of 2012, and I happen to know this because this is my birthday, the Democrat Party's platform committee endorsed gay marriage for the very first time in American history. And not only that, but they called for the repeal of the federal law that recognizes marriage as between a man and a woman. And yet, about one half of our nation is going to vote for Barack Obama in the upcoming elections. And many will support lower level Democrats for Congress, for Senate, 
and for state and local offices. But I want you to understand something. Every Democrat who runs does so after having assigned on to this particular platform. We cannot separate our vote for a candidate from the platform which they are proclaiming. To vote for a Democrat, to any Democrat, is to implicitly support the very platform that they are promoting. We have to keep that in our minds and in our thoughts as we go to vote. I'm not trying to tell you what to vote for. I'm trying to get you to think through the moral implications of your vote, that this is their party platform, and there is no such thing as a non-gay-supporting Democrat. They've signed that platform. And abortion? It is easier to get an abortion in America than it is to have knee surgery. Since Roe versus Wade was upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States of America, 50 million lives have been lost in this particular procedure. And as I said last week, that is more than all of the humans that were killed in all of the wars in all of human history combined. And that's in America alone through this, this crime of abortion. And here's another thing that you need to think through from a moral perspective. Just because something is legal does not mean that it is moral. Slavery in this nation was legal. And we know now, after having went, gone through the Civil War and thinking through our position as human beings, that slavery is an immoral procedure. Legal does not make moral. And that follows through with the concept of abortion as well. Almost 4,000 children are going to die today and every single day of our lives through abortion. And that means that in the very short time that we're having this sermon right out here on Turtle Beach, an average of 300 children are going to die. These are little arms and little legs being torn off of little bodies before they are sucked through a vacuum cleaner and into a garbage can and they're taken out to the landfill for disposal. And yet we turn our eyes to our national leader and we cheer the Democrat Party of the United States of America that wants this to continue. And I gotta tell you, I have no, no love for what's going on in this nation. I feel it's my obligation to speak out against these moral wrongdoings. And so here we are today speaking on this in context of Sodom and Gomorrah. The warning from the angels rings out as it did in Sodom in our land today. Get up, get out of this perverse place for the Lord will destroy this nation. The midnight cry was heard in Sodom and it will be heard again someday at the coming of Jesus Christ for his bride. And I tell you, those who are left will receive the judgment of God upon their unrighteousness. On the evening of April 14th, Captain Smith attended a private dinner party and while the captain rubbed shoulders with the wealthy diners, the crew overheard another warning from the Californian. After dinner, the captain had a conversation with his second officer, Charles Lightoller, and we have no idea what they discussed, but the captain went to bed without giving any orders to change course. Verse 15, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, arise, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of this city. Four people, only four. Abraham had asked for the city to be spared if 10 could be found. And you know what? Not even one half of that number were found. At dawn, when the city's eyes were heaviest with the smell of debauchery from the previous night, it was still hanging thickly in the air. 
Lot is urged to get up, get his family, and get moving because punishment is coming. Verse 16, and he lingered. The men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Amazingly, that verse right there is something that if you read it and you don't wonder what's going on, Lot lingered. He halted in his steps as these guys were imploring him to move. The Bible doesn't tell us why, but if we go back to chapter 13, we're reminded that Lot was a man of wealth. He had flocks, he had herds, he had tents, he had servants. He had so much stuff that he and his uncle Abraham had to separate because they couldn't live together. It says the land couldn't support them. He was also a judge in Sodom. Lot had many things. He had status, he had position, but he had little of any real value. He hadn't converted a single soul or convinced one person that they were living an immoral and wicked life and that it was wrong. He probably lingered out of remorse, both for the loss of his stuff and for the loss of those that he had failed to talk to. Lot would be, from this moment on, a lonely and broken man. And you know what? Jesus really is coming back. Why would you bother coming out to listen to a sermon if you didn't believe that? The beach is such a nice place, you could go out there and get a suntan instead of listening to me. But you're either here because you believe the Bible or you're curious if this book is true. Either way, the Bible does say that Jesus Christ is returning and his return is imminent. And that means that there is no moment that he could not come. From the moment he left, for 2,000 years we've been waiting and we may wait another 1,000 years or it could happen two minutes from now or in one second from now. We have no idea, but I guarantee you he is coming. And when he comes, there won't be any lingering and there won't be any thought. It will happen, as the Bible says, in the twinkling of an eye. If you twinkle your eye, I, what was it? General Electric, I think, is the one that did the study. Your eye blinks in about uh, one 500 millisecond or something. And you can blink your eye five times in a single second. That's how fast it's gonna be when Jesus Christ comes back to take the people out of the world and out of the destruction that's coming. And if you have work to do before that time, I would suggest that you get to it. That coworker that you've been meaning to talk to, the time is coming. Your family member that needs to hear the message one more time, the time is coming. The neighbor that you wave to every single morning, I got a couple of my wave to every day. Hi, Chuck. Jesus really is coming. He needs to be told about Jesus. Verse 17. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. The words from the men's mouth are emphatic in the Hebrew. Escape for your life. Here, there is only destruction and death. And there is only one means of escape. And this is very similar to what Jesus told the nation of Israel in a prophecy about what's coming in the end times. After the rapture, when the whole world is gathered against the nation of Israel to destroy them, the Jews who are willing to heed his words will need to be ready. Here's what he says to those people. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, that means the Antichrist, he's standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant 
and those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. And I can tell you that Jesus spoke after the flood of Noah when only eight people were saved. The entire world was destroyed by the flood. And he says it's going to be worse at that time because people will be left alive to endure what's coming. And he finishes up, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. That is called mercy. God has promised to punish the world for its unrighteousness, and yet he is shortening the days of judgment upon the world because of his mercy. And that brings us to our second thought, which is mercy from the Lord. Depending on what translation you use of this next verse, Lot is either speaking to one person or to two people, Lord or Lords. Here's what he says, verse 18. Then Lot said to them, please know, my Lords, it is either God or it is man. It is either Jehovah or it is the two angels he's speaking to. If you read the King James Version in this particular verse, it has the divine name, Jehovah. If you read the NIV, it indicates that he's talking to the two angels, but they footnote as possible that it could be Jehovah. If you read the New King James Version, which I use for my uh, uh, sermons here, then it indicates only two with no footnote. So I would like you, as you read your Bible, to pay attention to your footnotes and to study these differences and to come to your conclusions. Now, based on what the previous verses say and the verses which are coming ahead, it is the Lord Jehovah who he's speaking to. He has appeared with the two at this point in order to bring vengeance upon the Sodomites. Our text verse for today from the book of Jude confirms this, as does the great passage which comes from Paul's hand in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where he writes about the vengeance which is coming. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes, meaning Jesus, in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Yeah, the Lord really is coming and the Lord really 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 is angry at sin I got to tell you something the lamb is also the lion verse 19 indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight and you have increased your mercy which you have shown me by saving my life but I cannot escape to the mountains lest some evil overtake me that's Lot speaking to the Lord it was probably a very long and sleepless night for Lot and he also has his wife He's got his daughters and whatever stuff that he has grabbed as he went out the door. Now, when he looked at these mountains off in the distance, he was probably overwhelmed at the thought of traveling that far. At this point in the Bible narrative, Abraham is 99 years old. And as we saw from a previous sermon, Lot is older than Abraham. And his old body simply could not take the stress of moving all of this out to the mountains. Now, I was driving around the U.S. two years ago as I was preaching at the 50 capitals. There were times that the mountains, to me, would just jut right out of the, right out of the ground. And they seemed like they were right there, but there were many, many miles in the distance. And I remember thinking to myself how tough it must have been 
on the people that were settling the land. There were flatlands below the mountains that would hold in the heat. They were devoid of any shade or water. And there were also, when those people came, no roads. There was just these, you know, the tumbleweeds and these bramble bushes. And I thought how difficult it was to traverse this land to get to those mountains. And this is exactly the way it was for Lot as well. Although the plain of the Jordan, according to the Bible, was well watered at the time, as you got away from the Jordan, the land would be parched and miserable, just like it is today in Israel. Along with the sleepless night and all of his stuff to carry, he could not imagine facing another ordeal like what he's already gone through. And so he begs for mercy once again. Verse 20. Before I read you verse 20, though, I want to tell you something. I've read this book in the Bible, Genesis, probably 50 or more times, and I've taught on it at least 10. And uh, every time I've come to this particular verse, I've said there is a reason why this verse is here. And I asked the Lord, why is this verse here? And I have never come to an answer about it, ever, until Friday when I was practicing the sermon for the fifth time before doing it today, and it suddenly dawned on me why this verse is here. The particular wording in the verse is what I'm talking about, and I'll explain it to you in just a little while. But here's verse 20. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. It's the second time he says, isn't it a little one? That just, I'm wondering, why does it say that? And so we'll get to it and I'll explain to you. I went to every commentary possible to see if anybody had a resolution to this and I've never read one. But the Lord is good to give us insight. So here we go. Um, Instead of a long and tedious flight to the mountains, what he's doing is he's asking to have this city spared from the destruction and he's going to move from Sodom to that little city thought of getting up to these mountains means he'd have to trek up them as well and he just simply doesn't want to do that and while he is asking for mercy on himself he's actually asking for this mercy upon a city which is set for destruction it was one of the cities that was allied with Sodom if you remember back the battles between uh, the four kings of the east and the five kings of Sodom this is one of those cities it's probably similar in custom in culture, and in worship. However, the Lord, who knows the future, also knew that this request was going to be made before it was asked. Thus, there is a demonstration of mercy even in divine judgment, apart from righteousness. A portion of the wicked are going to be spared. Now, maybe this was, and I was trying to think, why would he do this? Maybe this was a way of giving Lot a chance to talk to the people of this little city and to get them to repent as he had failed to do in Sodom. I don't know, but the Lord is being merciful on this city. Verse 21, and he said to him, see, I have found favor. I have favored you concerning this thing also in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Before this, the city was called Bella, and Bella means destruction. Ironically, the very thing that this city was named for, destruction, is the thing that it didn't receive. And from this time on, the city would be known as Soar, which means little. The little town which received the Lord's mercy. And as I was thinking about that, as I said, on my fifth time practicing this sermon, it dawned on me that this is a picture of the Apostle Paul in Jesus Christ's ministry. And the reason why, does anybody know what Paul's name was before it was changed to Paul? Saul. 
Saul comes from the same root word as the word Sheol. It's the same word. Sheol is the place of destruction. And when his name was changed, it was changed to Paul. And Paul means little. And if you think I'm stretching this, I'm not. Here's what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 12 and 13. He says, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, Sodom, a persecutor, Sodom, an insolent man, just like Sodom. I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. This guy is being pictured back in the Old Testament showing what God is going to do in the Gentile people of the world because Paul is the apostle to the Gentile people of the world. We go to the book of James and he tells us about the petitions of a righteous person. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Lot fervently petitioned the Lord and the Lord responded, saving an entire city. And Zoar will not only remain for just a little while, it is going to remain for over a thousand years until the time of the prophet Jeremiah. That is the Lord's divine mercy, even in judgment. Verse 23, the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Early in the day at the rising of the sun and at the time that Lot enters this town, Zoar, we read a most interesting verse. I got to read it to you in the Hebrew and then explain it to you. Ve Yehovah himtir al Saddam ve el Amora gofrit ve eshmeet Yehovah min hashemayim. The thought is that Jehovah caused it to rain from Jehovah. No distinction is to be inferred from the hidden and the manifested creator. The Lord who is seen on the earth and who calls down the judgment is the same Lord who sits enthroned in the heavens sending down that same judgment. It's a very interesting thought. We look at pictures of Jesus cuddling little animals and we sing songs about God loving all of the children of the world. But the same Lord who really does cuddle little fluffy beings and blesses the children is the same Lord who looks with wrathful eyes at the wicked sins of men. Men who try to hide their sins or men who flaunt them openly in public. It doesn't make any difference. His eyes see them all. Both are exposed to his knowledge about them. People who look too intently at one aspect of Jesus, like his love, and disregard his other moral virtues are only deluding themselves. This same type of destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah will be used on the unrepentant world someday. Fire and brimstone, it will be an eternal swim in the lake of fire. These Old Testament pictures are given to us specifically to keep us from entering into that judgment. Verse 25, so he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. This here is the end of all wickedness. Though men become rich, powerful, or famous, it is worth nothing when destruction comes. The book of Lamentation details the destruction of God's own people because they rejected him. And I can read that book and I can weep at what happened on him. All alike are bound under sin and all will be judged. And it will either be in oneself or it will be in a substitute. And there is only one substitute that will allay God's wrath and that is his only begotten son. 
It's a terrible thing, as the Bible says, to fall into the hands of the living God. It is inevitable, though. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. The plain was destroyed, and all of the inhabitants of the city were destroyed, all of them. Young, old, male, female, wealthy, slave, all of them. Along with this, the lush, well-watered land. We look at the land and we think, why would God destroy the land? This was the most beautiful place on earth. The Jordan, its trees, its fields, its crops were laid waste. If you go there today, all you will see is heat, ruined land, undrinkable water, and you see the shimmering mountains of Moab off in the distance. I've been there. I know Kelly Carlin's been there. My mom's been there many times. It's a beautiful place to be, but it is inhospitable to say the least. The people and the buildings that are there now are entirely at the supply line of food and water and provisions being brought in. And without that supply line, it would be a miserable place left for only the hardiest of animals and the reptiles, like the dreaded and getty viper which lives there. Even bleaker than this prospect, though, and the eventual reality of it is the torment of hell. God has given us these examples as warnings, as divine warnings. He has also provided the avenue to true life, which is overflowing with an abundance of pure, crystal clean water. And he asks each one of us to make the choice and to come to that water of life, which is Jesus Christ. And that leads us to our third and final thought today, which is the unheeded warning. Verse 26, but and I got to tell you, when you're reading a chapter like this in the Bible that's got a lot of judgment and stuff in it, and you see the word but, you know something bad is coming. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. This is one of the seemingly incredible stories of the Bible. It's kind of on par with a donkey speaking or a prophet riding a chariot to heaven. And yet I guarantee you that this is what happened. Lot's wife, who was possibly named Iska, as we discussed in a previous sermon, became suitable seasoning for curry or maybe goat stew. For whatever reason, be it out of curiosity or the memory of secret sins which are pulling her back or maybe the sadness of her loss of possessions or her friends, she turned back to look. The divine warning had been given and it had been rejected. In today's church, this is what we would call an apostate. It is a person who has made a proclamation of faith in Jesus Christ and they live among the righteous in the, the church and they probably even act like all of the other believers, but they never truly believed. When they called on Jesus, they were crossing their fingers, or maybe they had their hands up in the air and they were calling on Jesus, so they were crossing their toes. Either way, they're an apostate. And maybe you're just like this lady. You come out to church on the beach, or you go to another church, you post nice things about Jesus on Facebook, you may even wear a cross, but inside you just don't believe. Your eyes are looking back to the world and longing, and your thoughts have never fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I assure you that today would be a very good day to change that. If you go to the area today where that woman was crystallized, there's a, a pillar there that's called Lot's wife. I've seen it, I was with my mom when I saw it. It isn't her though. I knew a very intellectual guy, he became a good friend of mine named Zvi Ravai. He's died this past year, but he did the calculations based on the amount of erosion from wind and rain and he determined that she would have melted back into the ground many, many centuries ago. Unless some traveling Bedouins took along a little bit for their curry, and then she would have been gone even quicker. Either way, Lot's wife is just a memory from a story in the Bible. Captain Smith of the Titanic was awakened by a member of his crew 
after the ship scraped an iceberg. At 2.20 in the morning on 15 April of 1912, Captain Edward J. Smith sunk with his ship, and guess what? He took along 1,516 other people with him. Those were precious human souls, and they all went down into the watery deep. Divine warnings have been posted along life's highway for us, just like the warnings that Captain Smith received. Some are more easily noted than others, I can tell you. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God and that the firmament shows forth his handiwork. It tells us that his invisible attributes are clearly seen and they're understood by the things that he has made, even his eternal power and his Godhead, so that we are without excuse. Just like the warnings for Captain Smith, God warns us through his creation, he warns us through his prophets, he warns us through his holy Bible, and guess what? He did it through the cross of his own son. How many warnings do we need to be given to understand that God is really, really, really angry at sin? I mentioned Billy Graham just a little while ago. Recently, he posted a prayer letter on his website, which he addressed to Deceived America. The question is, will his words go unheeded, just as the Bible has gone unheeded? And I, my answer is already yes, they will, because nobody read his letter. It was passed around in Christian circles, and nobody's taken it to heart. And I can tell you that if, in fact, what Billy Graham said is what the Bible proclaims goes unheeded, that it will be the end of our American experiment. But what I want to do is I want to read you his letter anyway, and maybe you can send it on to others in hopes that it will have some good. Some years ago, my wife, Ruth, was reading the draft of a book I was writing. When she was finished describing a, uh, uh, finished a section describing the terrible downward spiral of our nation's moral standards and the idolatry of worshiping false gods such as technology and sex, she startled me by exclaiming, if God doesn't punish America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I told you that earlier. She was probably thinking of a passage in Ezekiel where God tells why he brings those cities to ruin. It says there, now this was the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. I wonder what Ruth would think of America if she were alive today. In the years since she made that remark, millions of babies have been aborted, and our nation seems largely unconcerned. Self-centered indulgence pride and a lack of shame over sin are now emblems of the American lifestyle. Just a few weeks ago in a prominent city in the South, Christian chaplains who serve the police department were ordered to no longer mention the name of Jesus Christ in prayer. It was reported that during a recent police-sponsored event, the only person allowed to pray was someone who addressed the being in the room. Similar scenarios are now commonplace in towns across America. Our society strives to avoid any possibility of offending anyone except God. Yet the farther we get from God, the more the world spirals out of control. My heart aches for America and its deceived people. The wonderful news is that the Lord is a God of mercy, and he responds to repentance. In Jonah's day, Nineveh was the lone world superpower, wealthy, unconcerned, and self-centered. When the prophet Jonah finally traveled to Nineveh and proclaimed God's warning, people heard and repented. Proverbs 16:18 says that pride goes before destruction 
and a haughty spirit before a fall. What we need to do is to let go of our pride, shun our haughty nature, and with humility and remorse, petition the Lord to be merciful upon us for our many, many sins. Thank you, Billy Graham. I want to take just two more minutes, and I want to expand upon what Billy Graham said by explaining to you not only that we do need to repent, but how we can do it by calling on the name of Jesus Christ and what that means. God gave us, as I read in our New Testament reading, the law, and it was given to us for two very specific reasons. One was to show us how utterly sinful sin is, and the second reason was to lead us to something greater than the law itself. Jesus came to fulfill that law that you and I can never fulfill. He gave his life up after fulfilling it on the cross to pay for our sin debt. Every sin debt of every human being that ever existed or ever will exist is nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ if they will do one thing, simply call on him as Lord. And nobody calls on a dead Lord that implies that he came back out of the grave to prove who he is and to, he did what he said that he was going to do, that he would fulfill the law and that he would reconcile us to our infinite creator. And finite sin infinitely separates us from an infinite creator. And so Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God, so he can put his hand on his infinite father, and fully man, so he can put his hand on finite us, will be the bridge back to, to restoration. And there is no other way for it to be affected except through him. So if you have never called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today, I would ask that you simply consider this and to understand that God really is angry at sin and he really is going to judge sin. And it's either going to be in you as an individual or in his own son as the substitute. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to preach about this, to speak about it, and to hopefully get somebody to change their ways and to call on you. This has been a very painful three sermons for me personally because you know I love to speak about your love, but we do have to preach the whole counsel of God, and that includes the judgment which is coming upon an unrighteous world. And I thank you for the opportunity to do even that. We have uh, a poem to read, which I hope will glorify you, and then we're going to be done. But we thank you for being with us through this and even providing a crowd to disturb us to keep our thoughts active and attentive. Thank you, Lord. Our poem for the week is called The Wages of Sin. It's based on the verses that we just looked through in the uh, chapter uh, Genesis 19. I think it was, what, um, 19 or 16 through 26 or whatever uh, verses I just uh, went through. But before we get into that poem, I want to remind you that next week is going to be Genesis 19, 27 through 38. And I hope you get the pun in this particular uh, title, A Lot of Mistakes, Rethinking the Time in the Cave. Because most people really barbecue a lot for what occurred in that cave. And I've got to tell you, I came to a completely different conclusion. And I think when you hear what I have to tell you, you will be hugely surprised at what occurred in the cave with Lot. Anyway, here we go. Today's poem is The Wages of Sin. The messenger said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters? anyone in the city take them out of this place for its destruction is near because the outcry against them has ended the lord's pity he has sent us to destroy it and this we will do so lot went out and he spoke to his sons-in-law but they just laughed him off thinking he had a loose screw and so sadly lot made his withdrawal 
When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry. Arise, take your wife and your two daughters. You'd best scurry, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city, because the outcry against it has ended the Lord's pity. But he lingered, so the men took hold of his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters also. The Lord was merciful to him, and he gave the command to get away before on Sodom destruction would blow. Escape for your life. Do not look behind you as you flee. Don't stay anywhere in the plain. In the mountains there is safety. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight. You have increased your mercy through your life-saving words, but I cannot flee to the mountains. Man, I've been up all night. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there until the Lord's destruction is done. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing. I will not overthrow this tiny little city. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Yes, I will show pity. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. It received the Lord's mercy, and there Lot went. But when the sun rose and Lot had gotten that far, the Lord's wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah was to be spent. Then the Lord rained from heaven brimstone and fire. On Sodom and Gomorrah came the wrath of God. Everyone in the city was consumed in the pyre because by wickedness the people had trod. So he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants who resided there. Never would they be rebuilt. No, never again, because the people wouldn't the Lord's name declare. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt with no one to blame. It was only her fault. What about us living today? Will we turn from our grievous sin? Can our land repent and God's wrath allay? Or is it too late? Have we done ourselves in? With the Lord, mercy can be found if we humble ourselves from city to city. But if we don't turn our hearts around, the outcry against us will end the Lord's pity. O oh, sinful land, turn once again to Jesus. Let us give him honor and praise. When we do, he will show mercy on us and we will walk in his light for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Once again, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for every good and kind blessing which flows down from your open hand of grace and from your divine hand of mercy. Above all, thank you for Jesus, our Lord, and his cross, which reconciled us to you. We just could never do anything to repay that, so by faith alone we receive it and help us to be strong messengers and tell others about your great love for the world and what you have done. And at the same time, proclaim that you are angry at our sins and that we need to be right in your presence by humbling ourselves and repenting. Oh God, we love you, we praise you. All glory, all honor, all majesty, it belongs to you alone. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.